Hello and welcome back to Control-Alt-Delete. My guest today is Sam Baker, journalist, broadcaster and author, as well as former editor-in-chief of Cosmopolitan and Red magazine in the UK. She has written for countless publications and co-founded The Pool. Sam has also judged the Women's Prize for Fiction, the Costa Novel Award and the British Book Awards. And in this episode, we are discussing her brilliant book, The Shift, How I Lost and Found Myself After 40, and You Can Too. It's out in paperback now, and I really love this book. It's for any woman staring the second half of their lives in the face and wondering what the hell is going on. Even though I'm not over 40, I just found it really honest and raw, poignant and just fascinating to read about the stuff that we're not really told as women. I really enjoyed it and Sam peels back the layers on her own life, tackles topics such as perimenopause, sexism and ageism, as well as interviewing loads of other women over 40 in the book. So the pearls of wisdom in there, but also the vulnerabilities and the truth of getting older. She also has a fabulous podcast called The Shift on life over 40 with guests such as Philippa Perry, Emma Freud and Jojo Moyes. It's a really great listen and I'm just craving that honesty and conversations between women at the moment. So I hope you enjoy this conversation. So I read The Shift last summer on holiday and I just didn't put it down. My nose was fully in its pages. And I've been really obsessed recently, actually, with reading books about that part of life. And I've been listening to a podcast called Everything is Fine, which is a podcast for over 40s. And I'm so, I'm just, I can't get enough of women talking about the real stuff. Would you agree that some bits of being a woman, you suddenly arrive there and you're like, oh, surprise, no one told me this was going to happen? Oh, totally. I mean, I think Everything is Fine. is a, It's a really great podcast. And it's um, the kind of brainchild of Kim France, who used to work on Lucky and Sassy. And you're too young, probably, for Sassy. But Sassy was like the holy grail of teenage magazines when um, old people like me were, were growing up. But yeah, I felt like when I when menopause hit me, which was mid-40s, and I love that you read a book about being 40 plus on holiday. It doesn't seem like an obvious holiday read to me. But, you know, when that hit me, I just didn't know what the hell was going on. And it felt, I mean, it felt to me that people just didn't talk about that at all. And I wanted to, I mean, the reason I wrote the book when I got through the hell that was perimenopause was because I wanted to explore why, kind of why that was, you know, why, why, is it because being young is so lauded in our society that we just don't want to talk about anything beyond that or think about anything beyond that? And it was interesting what you said about how when it happened, you were, I guess, in your career kind of at the top of the ladder. So you were, so everyone below you were kind of 20 years younger in the office. So they were all talking about like buying their first flat or, well, probably not buying. Or not buying it, yeah. Not to trivialise it, but like other things. Did, did that add to that sense of feeling like you were the only one going through it because you weren't around other women talking about those topics. Totally, totally. I mean, uh, I was, yeah, so that would have been on the pool and I was late 40s and, yeah, most of the most of the staff were below early 30s and a lot of them in their 20s. And I felt like, I mean, I felt redundant, actually. I felt a true sense of redundancy. And it wasn't just the that my life stage was so different, you know, 
they were, I write, uh, there's a chapter in the book about fertility or lack thereof. And I had an experience where one of the women on the team was going through um, IVF. And I, I was at this point where I had just been told by my gynecologist that I was all out of eggs. And that's such, that experience is so the polar opposite. You're just, at, you know, one person's at the beginning of the journey and the other person's at the end of the journey. And it, yeah, it was a, it was really dissonant. And then it that kind of tapped in to you suddenly find yourself at the intersection of ageism and sexism. If you're lucky to be a white woman, that's the only intersection you find yourself at. And, you know, if you're a black woman or a woman of color, then it's a whole lot worse. And you know, I mean, redundant is the word, like true. That's a true sense of redundancy that I, I wasn't prepared for at all. So strange that we just mirror back this image of youth in magazines so much, because I would say women of all ages read magazines. So that must just be really weird every day reading about something that's not your experience. And and if we are talking about it, we're kind of glamorizing it, only talking about the positives, maybe. Yeah, or we're talking about, you know, whatever the kind of media obsession at the moment is. So there was a phase and it's not, I mean, it's not a phase because it's a, a reality for people's lives every day, but where literally every single day, every single digital platform had a piece about whether or not to have a child, how to have a child, what happens if you can't have a child. And it's, yeah, there's a fixation, I think, on a certain life stage partly because motherhood is so lionized, partly because it's the, the key part of the women's narrative, life narrative. Um, and maybe also because of the age of a lot of people who work in the media. But then that's that's the problem, isn't it, really? That's what we're talking about. I don't know whether you read it, but there was a piece on Refinery29 quite a long time ago by Sarah Raphael, who was then the editor. And she, she wrote that, you know, she was only 30 and she was looking up and she could count the role models for want of a better way of putting it on one hand, you know, and I was one of those and I wasn't feeling very role modelly at that time. But if you're already feeling like that at 30, you know, how are 40 somethings and God forbid 50 somethings feeling? But that's why it's so important to have these conversations and why your book, I just love, I think I said it was like a bit of a warm hug of a book because it's someone saying, we all go through this. It's just no one's talking about it. So don't feel by yourself. It's the same with Everything is Fine podcast. One of them was saying that she goes to bed and her neck was sweating. And she was like, <laughs> and then and then the other person was like, yeah, me too. But what was interesting as well about your book is how the judgment of women or the comparison of women just doesn't stop. And it's it was kind of annoying, you know, being aware of how the HRT conversation and some women do and some women don't. And it's like the, with motherhood, some women mother this way, mother that way, and who wore it best? It just, why does it happen with menopause as well? Uh, I know, you just think, you hope that you're going to grow out of it, don't you? And, and you just never do. I mean, I think, unfortunately, in our, I'm, I was hoping I would get through a whole podcast without saying the word patriarchy, but no, it's not going to happen. <laughs> you know, in our society and the way society is structured, women are set up against each other to kind of compete. And one thing I, a thing I would say actually about menopause, which has been 
really welcome and a lot of the women that I've spoken to for the shift podcast have said the same thing that they feel like that sense of competition between women that they had growing up and as young women that even as you know good feminists they knew was bad but was still there that does that does pass a bit I think that that seems to go along with the maybe along with the male gaze I think particularly around issues of women's health you're always judged if you do and judged if you don't and your opinion is discounted. And I found that once I realized that what I was going through was perimenopause and I didn't really realize that until I started having hot flushes, which are such a, you know, they're the thing that everybody knows about menopause. I hadn't realized all the mental health issues that came before were also symptomatic of perimenopause. You know, once I realized that, then I went into this, oh, I shouldn't take HRT because, you know, all these reasons, because I would be playing into the hands of the pharmaceutical industry. I would be being a bad feminist. I'd be letting the sisterhood down. And then I just had to take a step back and go, you know, this point in your life, you've got to stop worrying about what other people think and, and do what you need to do. And if HRT works for you and it works for some women it doesn't work for other women and it's you know also hrt is a big catch-all for something which takes many 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 different forms um then you know why the hell not if it's going to make your life better there's a sense that another woman's decision reflects on our decisions so when you watch all the debates arguments whatever about say breastfeeding it often feels to me that it's not really an argument about breastfeeding it's an argument about our insecurity in our own decisions it's just funny how everything is framed as a debate it's very strange it's kind of the similar thing around antidepressants and whether they're good or bad but it's actually kind of that's not the question the question is does it work for the individual and that's it really I think everything is framed as a zero-sum game, isn't it? It's either good or bad, or it's, if you get this, then it means I can't have that, instead of there being a bit of the pie for everyone. And it's interesting you mentioned antidepressants, because I I felt very much like, oh, you know, antidepressants were bad. And then I remember having a conversation with the legendary novelist Marianne Keyes, and her referring to her anti-mads. And I just thought, oh my God, she's right. There's nothing to be ashamed of. If they work for you, if they make your life better, if they make the lows less low, why not? It's not for everybody. Not everybody wants to do that, but it doesn't matter. And I think so much of, and I'm going to say being a woman because that's what I am, but so much of being a woman is framed in what other people think. And that's been the big thing about menopause for me is that I can't say that I've got rid of it altogether, but I, I care much less about that and I think I that's I really wish that I'd had that insight 20 years ago I think I'd made a lot of different decisions yeah that reminds me of um this Deborah Levy quote that I saw in the Guardian I think to do with her new book about how women often don't know what they think because they're being told so much what to think yeah and it's actually really hard to unpick what you even want with your life because of the messaging so intense her new book, Real Estate, it's just absolutely wonderful. I mean, I don't know if, and Cost of Living, which was the one before, was just one of those books. It's a real, it's a real wake up. One of the things she said is something that so many women said to me when I was researching the shift was that, you know, you spend 20, 30 years. I don't want this to be depressing for anyone who's in the middle of that. I'm 30 something having children, whatever, but 
for some women, spent 20, 30 years having a family, building a family, keeping a family together. And then she turned around, Deborah Levy turned around, many other women said that, and thought, why am I doing this? I don't want to save this. It really struck me how many women in there, beyond 50 mainly, but some a little younger, turned around and said that actually this is not working for me. And yes, I'm glad that I had children and I'm glad that I had this family if, if they had. But I think what we, you really need to unpick there, if you can bear it, is did we do that because we really, really wanted it? Or did we do it because that was the narrative? And that's what women do. In a way, menopause is is the gift. And there's a, a the poet, Katha Pollitt, I'm not going to be able to remember to quote her accurately, but basically about this is when our stories run out. You know, when you're in your late 40s, your, your fertility is out the window, or you're all out of eggs, as my gynecologist beautifully, poetically put it. That, you know, society's kind of done with you, but that's that's a gift. You can, you know, just do something for you if you're in the position of privilege to be able to do that, obviously. But hearing you say society has done with you I literally feel that my whole body just relaxed because I know that I don't want to like glamorize or romanticize getting older but I think I do I think I I think I can't wait actually to be like just getting on with my life a bit and I know the invisible chapter you talk about how that obviously is a weird period of time so I don't I don't want to say it's like going to be a positive thing 100% but I don't know I like the idea of that Invisibility is an interesting notion though, isn't it? Because it's like invisible who to. Exactly. And I, you know, I was never like a babe, shall we say? So, or a head turner. Head turner was a phrase a lot of women use, which was really interesting to me because I've never been one. Maybe I'm invisible to the male gaze. Do I care? Not at all. I don't care about that at all. Um, and, and in fact, I've interviewed Alison Bechtel for the next episode of The Shift. Oh, she was absolutely brilliant. But like she said, I love it. I love, you know, that the male gaze can't see me anymore. That's fantastic. But then, then at the moment, the male gaze is the gaze of society. So we need to, you know, we need to reframe that. But it makes me so happy to hear you say that you're not like dreading being older because you know, one of the things that I was really hoping that the book would start, you know, that it would start a conversation about menopause, of course, but actually that it would take away some of the fear for younger women. Because I think, you know, there is a sense that men are allowed to age and women aren't. You know, that men are, men get get gravitas. They get made CEO and women get to knit and be a granny. And I just think, I don't know anybody like that. And I, I think the more that we can say that what an opportunity it is to be older and see older women doing their own thing, then the better that is for women who are in their 30s and 40s. Definitely. It's interesting because I think that that's why the media or magazines, should I say, clash with the reality of life a lot of the time. Because I think, and a lot of my friends would agree, and like just people around that I talk to, when women get older, they get so much more attractive. And men say it too. They like people love like an older woman. So why do we not see them looking good in magazines? Yeah, I mean, I I have to put my hand up and say after editing magazines for I can't even remember how long a long time, I feel like we should have done more. And it, I really admire now the work of say Edward Ennin for Long Vogue, where he's just completely subverting expectations. So whilst I think it's been too long coming, it's it's brilliant to see 
people putting trans women or black women or older women on the cover. But I still would say that there aren't many older women. You don't, it's very rare to see an older woman on the cover. I mean, I think Vogue put Judy Dench on the cover last April or something like that. I mean, Jane Fonda, but she's not really Well, that was, see, that's everyone. another interesting thing is that when I posted that Jane Fonda cover on my Instagram feed, a lot of women just laid into her. And then they said, oh, no, we're laying into the magazine for making her not look authentic. But I find that a bit depressing because that that goes back to what you were saying about judging and who wore it best. And it's like, you know, the woman is well in her 80s. She is doing civil disobedience like the best of them, you know, and campaigning. And she is amazing. She's incredible. And she's on the cover of Harper's Bazaar. So can, can we just take that? Yeah. And in a leotard doing yoga, like that is... That's a good message for us all. <laughs> yeah, it's not saying, I think it's that people feel that it's saying something about them again. And this is like, what it's all about reflecting back to you. To me, Jane Fonda being celebrated on the cover of Harper's Bazaar is not saying, you should be thinner. It's saying, whoa, look at Jane Fonda on the cover. I mean, that's all. I'm. It's, but maybe that's at the point I'm at in my life. I don't look at that and think I'm too fat. Or, you know, I've got too many wrinkles or anything. I just think, wow, Jane Fonda. Well, I think the reason why it works is because Jane Fonda is being Jane Fonda. It's very authentic, even though she's like this superwoman. What I have a problem with is when I saw someone on the cover of, I won't say what magazine, but a older woman's magazine. And she was a famous actress in her 70s. And her hands had been photoshopped. Like they looked like baby's hands. And I just thought this is, this defeats the object. Like, let's just see her hands for what they are. Yeah, it's, um, yeah, and that's interesting, isn't it? It's actually the magazine that was aimed at the older women that had, I mean, I think I know which one you mean, actually. And it, yeah, yeah, I mean, it's, you know, airbrushing is such an enormous conversation in itself, isn't it? But it feels to me that ageism is the unsexy diversity. You know what I mean? It's something that people don't really want to talk about. And then whenever you do talk about it on social media, you always get the men suffer from ageism too. Like, yeah, okay, we know that. But how many men over 50 are there on boards of FTSE 100 companies? Too many to count. How many women are there? Mm. I think I've got enough fingers to do that job. So fundamentally, that's the line in the sand, really, to me. And if you are someone who has had children, I suppose that ticking of the clock of you've given a lot of your life to that and then now maybe you're wanting to do other things and if you're then struggling with ageism after doing all of that I can imagine that's really hard too. Yeah I mean I I haven't had children so I haven't had that experience but a lot of the women again that I spoke to when I was doing research they they all said you know it feels like I have done a lot of things for other people. I have put, not the probably these exact words, but I've been putting other people first for the last 25 years. Now's the time for me. And for quite a large percent, a large minority of those women, that involved leaving their relationships, which I thought was kind of sad, actually. I loved the chapter on people pleasing. It was so <laughs> unapologetic and amazing. And there's a really great piece in The Guardian, I think you did. Was that a yes, separate piece? Yes, yeah, it was or? The Observer, yeah. It was, an ex- it was an extract, I think. And you look great in the photo, by the way. Oh, thanks. A lot of makeup in that photo. I think there's a Gwyneth Paltrow quote in the book, actually, where she says something along the lines of, 
when you're past 40, you're no longer A-B testing your personality. You're just you. Yes. And I yes. love that because I'm only just, I think, going into this phase of my life where I'm not constantly just testing out who I am. I'm like, oh my God, the amount of brain space I'm saving is amazing. Yeah, it's such a waste of energy, isn't it? It's like the thing, I think one of the things I found most motivating and inspiring when I was writing the book was I read Untamed by Glennon Doyle, who I know you've had on that. One of the points that she made about little girls and how they are, you start to be tamed at about, she said eight or nine, but I would say it's younger. And how when you come out at the other side of being a woman, I suppose, you're like trained to be a woman from being when you're in eight or nine, and then you come out the other side. And it's almost like that is the point that you can untame yourself again. And so many women I spoke to and I asked them what their emotional age was, how they, you know, how they felt in themselves. An awful lot of them say that they feel more in touch now with their little selves than they have anywhere through between 20 and 40, which I thought was really interesting. And it's slightly that, well, I don't know whether you've heard it, but Philippa Perry, I think she said she was four or something. Um, and, and she actually does an impression of her four-year-old self on the podcast. And it's that real, that real sense of self that small children, small girls have. Speaking personally, I lost, and I think that that would be a familiar experience for a, a lot of women. Yeah, I do hear people say, you know, those friends of mine who have daughters or my older sisters, there's definitely a shift in a girl who is just not really aware of herself and her body to then being like mm. overly aware of it. And I would love to get that back, that sort of like neutrality. Like it's not even being body yeah. positive. It's just, it's my body. Yeah, it just is what it is. Yeah, yeah. I. It's interesting you mentioned body neutrality because I think that's a much more achievable aspiration than body positivity. Yeah, having to love yourself every day is is quite is quite a task <laughs> i'm like yeah. i'm just gonna be okay with myself is that all right <laughs> yeah i it's not it's not something i'm ever gonna pull off loving myself at, at all let alone every day and i think also probably generationally i do think that there's a bit of a thing that a, a lot of older women feel a slight resistance to self-care i think as you get older yeah the other thing i guess was that um bit in the book where you talk again, unapologetically about not really feeling that maternal, even with people around you. There is this weird thing where women are expected to, like even last night, my boyfriend and his friend were around and I was like, oh, do I need to cook them some food? And then I was like, what? No, that's not my no. job. <laughs> no way. And then, um, and then it's just this really weird thing of um, clearing up or doing something where you're sort of acting like you should be and then unpicking that and being like, this is a really weird tuning that women have got sometimes where they feel like they need to look after people all the time. Yeah, and I think it kind of might slightly come from, I don't know, where your role was in the family when you were little. or I mean, certainly when we moved in, you know, we moved up to Edinburgh last summer and, you know, everything was flat pack and I'm just, I'm worse than hopeless with anything flat pack. And I could see us slipping into those roles because John could build everything. And all I did was get in the way and go, is this nail meant to be here? And he'd be like, can you just piss off? And so then I started cleaning because I felt like it was the contribution that I could make. 
It was it was very weird, and I'm, I've stopped that. But the thing that bothered me more, really, was in the office, and I definitely felt like always expected to make the tea. It was really striking when I had you know my own business, and I still was expected board meetings. I would be like making the tea, and you know I was one who was going buy the milk across the road, and you know being the office mum. I hated that, but somehow always felt that. I was their mum. And then that gets worse. As the age gap grows between you and your staff, then it almost gets worse because they put that on you too. So it's, um, and if it doesn't come naturally, I'm not a nurturer. I can't pretend I am. It's not, you know, I was never maternal. My body clock never ticked, you know, which is lucky because it turns out it didn't work anyway. Um, But I'm not a nurturer, you know. I'll make you a cup of tea if you're feeling sad, but that is about it. And I'm much less like that now. That's what I loved about the book, though, is, you know, it shouldn't be a revelation to hear someone say that. But I do think even in the conversation with a child free discussion, it's like a lot of women feel they have to say, oh, I don't want kids, but I'm really nurturing in this way. And I have (laughs) nieces and I, you know, work at a nursery like they always try and caveat. And it's actually okay to say that's not really me. It's just not my personality. And I think there's the stereotype, isn't there, of someone who is has a successful career and doesn't have children, then they must be a bull-breaking bitch, you know, and selfish and put everything before, you know, family. And I mean, obviously, if you do work 24-7, you probably are putting your work first. But that that notion that you're kind of cruel and heartless and cold if you don't have children, I just... It's just yet one of those those story arcs that's set up for women. You know, that's the path of the. I mean, have you read *The Transition Baby*? Not yet. It's on my pile. I think you'll love it. It's that the but she talks about the Sex and the City problem, of the kind of the paths that those four characters tread that are the basically the quite well worn four paths that are set out for cis women and I think that they're reductive but detransition baby make really made me see that as a privilege that to see those paths as you know limiting you have to be in a strong position to 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 feel like that about them but no you must read it I think you'll absolutely love it oh definitely this is why I love talking to you because I always get book recommendations in and amongst the chat because you've just read <laughs> everything I love it but I, I wondered with the podcast doing the podcast after writing the book because and maybe this is just my personal feeling of when I write my books and then I talk about it, it actually has a profound impact on my life and confidence. And I like day to day kind of embed it in my life. Has doing the podcast had that effect on you day to day? Like, have you changed much or grown or? The podcast has been, I mean, it's no exaggeration to say the podcast has been a lifesaver through lockdown. I, you know, I worked in an office more on than off for 30 years. I'm so old, Emma. And I, I'm i institutionalised. There's, there's no, I can't pretend I'm not. I, I'm like a person who's just been let out of prison and I didn't know what to do with myself. I don't know how to get up if it's, I don't have to be on a train at 7.20, you know. I didn't know what to do with all those hours in the day, even though I had lots of work to do. So the podcast, you know, with the, with being locked down and being still like a a year into not working in an office, it really gave me a very much needed structure. 
And it gave me also an excuse to talk to amazingly interesting women um, for an hour every week. Or I don't, that's not quite how I do it, but you know, it kind of does give you that. So, so no, I, I love it. I'm, I love interviewing people. I much prefer being on your side of the microphone than mine because <laughs> I love prying into other people's business. Um, and I love that the podcast gives me an excuse. But also it made me realize what I had loved about editing magazines was the audience. It wasn't putting a beautiful picture on a page that gave me a kick. It was the reaction of the, the people who read it. The shift, the book had had amazing feedback and it, even now, you know, the paperbacks just come out and I get most days I get emails from women going, oh my God, you know, it's changed my life or I didn't know everybody felt like that, which is a very kind of magazine response. You used to get those letters letters back in the day when people, you know, women would say, I, you know, it's like you're inside my head. And it really, the podcast has really made me realize that that's what I like. I like tapping into something that women are thinking and saying, or nobody else is saying, and then constantly. So the podcast is constantly growing and changing based on the feedback that I'm getting from women on social media every day. So it's really made me learn that about myself. I don't think, I don't think it's, it's a needy thing. It's not that I need, I mean, everybody needs a good review, let's be honest. But at the set, it's not about that. It's more about what are they getting out of it? What could I be doing differently that they would get more out of it? And I think it's been a real learning experience, but also it has been an absolute sanity saver. I don't know whether you've found that. But you haven't worked in an office for a long time, have you? So you probably don't miss it. I, I, I don't know what it's like to work in an office anymore, but I definitely, it's interesting that you make that link between it being a dialogue and it being about connection and I think you've always done that I remember reading something years ago you wrote very honestly in a newspaper I think about when you left your editor role at Red and it was almost like the veil had come off and the vulnerability was there and that's why people connect with you I think as well because you always tell the truth about things oh (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's I don't know it's it's a really it's it's weird, isn't it? Because you tell the truth and then you think, oh my God. And then it's, then it's out there and you can't take it back. If the, a book like The Shift had been there when I was 46 and honestly thought that I was going completely mad, then that would have been life-changing for me. So I just felt that it was really important to put that out there and hope that it might help some other women. You know, it's not a there are loads of like health books and medical books and all that about menopause. And it's not that book. I mean, menopause is only really one or two chapters. It's really about life when, yeah, it's just, it's about life when the, there's no more narrative, I think. Because that, that's what came to me is the shift that that word, that phrase, it was almost like we're going to have an internal shift of our body shifting and our bod and literally like, our whole body's changing but then there's also an external shift which is the world shifts and we can feel suddenly like we're we're becoming irrelevant or like even now I, I mean I'm not on TikTok and I and I don't know how to <laughs> use it and it's like oh okay the, the gap is widening there with like what's in and so that shift in the media the shift in the world that adds to probably the anxiety as well yeah I mean I'm so happy you're not on TikTok I used to feel like I had to keep up, 
you know, that I had to do and know how to do all of those things and I had to be on top of it. And I certainly don't want to be one of those people who's like, well, I'm still going to use a checkbook and you take it or leave it, you know, because ultimately you're going to reach a point where you can't eat anymore. But at the same time, I think it's, it's quite a relief to maybe stop chasing that stuff and to accept that, you know, TikTok is great and that's, you know, the people who do it love it and it's funny or whatever, but it's not for me. I mean, it's as much as I can do to do a reel on Insta and I don't even really like doing that, to be quite honest. Me too, me too. I think we're going to go into a really strange next few decades of technology changing and it's like, I'm going to have like one foot on it, but the other foot reading books. Thank you so much for coming on. Oh, well, thank you for having me. I've really loved it. I wanted to just end on asking you because we're sort of in a strange time now if you're listening now or you're listening in the future we are recording it as we kind of reimmerse ourselves slightly into the world what are you looking forward to what you're excited about at the moment oh god just you know eating something in a place that isn't my home with people who aren't oh my, my husband can be there he can be one of the people but not the only person I think somebody said to me the other day, What's your, what outfit are you really looking forward to wearing? And I was just like, anything that comes out of a suitcase. You know, that's, it's just those, it's the incidentals I think that I miss most, the bumping into people at parties, the, the things that we all used to moan about all the time, like, oh, having to go to a launch or a party or the things that you spend all your time trying to work out how to get out of, if you're me. Um, now I long to have to go to those things. And the people that you, they're not your good friends, so you haven't Zoomed with them. And they're not work people, so you haven't Zoomed with them, but the people that you only see when you bump into them at parties. Those are the people that I miss, weirdly. Yes. So that, just just those incidental things that we absolutely massively took for granted. I love that. Yeah, those periphery friends that probably did stimulate quite a few ideas as well. And I miss that. Yeah, it's if you think about it, probably the most interesting conversation in any office takes place by the coffee machine or when you're waiting outside the meeting room to go into the meeting because the meeting before has run over. And those are the things that don't happen anymore. I know. Well, we'll get some of it back. Chitter chatter yes. with, with randoms. Can't wait. Um, so The Shift is out now in paperback to anyone listening. Go and check out Sam's amazing podcast, The Shift, as well. And can't wait to read future books and follow your work beyond. Thank you. Thanks, Emma. Thank you for having me.